Welcome back to How AI Built This, the podcast dedicated to data and entrepreneurial storytelling. Uh, as always, we're brought to you by Cathcart Associates, technology recruitment experts, so massive thank you to them. On today's episode, we welcome back Leanne Kim Fitzpatrick, uh, the recently-ish appointed Director of Data Science at the Financial Times. Uh, welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. This is really exciting. I quite like having a return guest because it means that liked it enough the first time that they are happy to come back and chat to me. Um, and you've done two Mankimels, is that right? I am. I'm on two. I'm still waiting to get that third in when I will get that magical t-shirt polo, know, some I kind of remember. special goodie gift that I think we're trying to avoid because we don't know what it could be I, if I, I do come. Yeah, we do. Do you know what? I had to, we do have some Mankimel t-shirts or polos somewhere in our office uh, and then eric's always up for getting more stuff so i'm sure we can twist his arm if anyone hasn't listened to the first podcast with you uh we're not going to go through education and career history on this one so go check out episode 15 that's quite wild i just posted 65 today and you were on episode 15 and i feel like it wasn't that long ago uh but here we go um you're getting through all these wonderful guests that you have and i know do you know what actually this is going to sound like i'm just bragging now but there's a big list on a spreadsheet i've got of like people that want to be on or we've spoken about being on and like i don't even know when i'm going to fit it in yet like i don't know if i'm going to do loads in the new year and just post like as many as i can or keep trying to spread out a little bit like i don't know if more is better or like yeah i don't know i can't quite decide but we'll figure that out since we last had you in the show, lots has changed. You moved country because when we were last speaking to you, you were in Austin. Now you're in Manchester? Yep, back in Manchester, unfortunately. Although I think last time we spoke, we were talking about Austin-based beer and, you know, Manchester isn't such a bad place to be for beer. Not so good for weather. But, you know, I was in Manchester last week uh, and one of the guys I was meeting said I hope you've brought an umbrella and I was like well it's Manchester like it's always raining it was the worst rain I've ever seen in my life um and I walked through it to get to Old Trafford to watch a football game and was absolutely soaked so it was a nice welcome back to Manchester but yeah so you moved back spent a year working at Talk Talk um as data science manager actually building quite an impressive team there as well from the top of my head there's quite a lot of people there that it was a pretty pretty stellar data science team yeah, it was some really fantastic people from across the Manchester community in, in that team. So I was very privileged while I was there. And it was a big challenge as well, right, when you first moved? Like there was lots to, to get on with. Yeah, we were very much, I think, where the team was is that we had a lot of um, excellent stuff going on, but in terms of quite siloed data science in the sense that each individual in the team was off kind of executing some some great project work, but not really a coordinated effort as a data science team. So mm. it was quite an exciting thing for me to come into this kind of, as you mentioned, stellar, very tenured, very proficient, capable and excellent team and just kind of bring them together a little bit to, to help them work together. And I think I think I helped with that. I hope I put some of the glue together. People seem pretty happy. Um and you know there was it was it was a really interesting challenge there's a lot of different dynamics going on i think there was a lot of um challenges but opportunities working for a very much a value provider in the data science space yeah um and i imagine quite a lot of challenges i think from a data science perspective given that i mean they've got loads of customers they've got loads of suppliers they've got loads of like marketing effort they've got like there's a whole host of things that you can attack from a data science point of view was part of your job to decide what 
made sense to look at first? There was a multiple fronted uh, effort there because I think I wasn't just looking at data science, but a lot of like the data governance compliance challenges we had, like our ethics kind of frameworks. And we also had overall quite a um, the business itself was quite transactionally focused. So what that meant in terms of our data platform and our architectures and our uh, data lake or data warehouse was that whilst we had a fantastic really talented data engineering team we had a lot of tooling and um, different applications and services that weren't all hooked up into our system so very typical kind of when you talk to anyone from a, a working in a data environment where things have been cobbled together and things aren't really speaking to each other very well that was the kind of the ecosystem we were working with so when it came to the challenges we wanted to attack or the where we could drive the most value a lot of that was going to be constrained or governed by actually the data that we had to work with that wasn't just transactional but we had some historic data so that we didn't have to go through that process of the governance and compliance conversations to capture everything we wanted to create and yeah. The data science team itself actually were curating their own feature store as well as what we had in kind of our data warehouse um, that was much more fit for purpose for a lot of the, the different projects we were working on, such as like churn. Um, we were doing a lot of geo clustering for new product development, which was really, really fun. Um, and a lot of that we were having to kind of curate from our own data warehouse that we kind of had a, a, our own silo. So it was a really interesting experience to go through that from a very small startup where I guess I felt like we had architectural considerations that we'd overlooked, but then could quickly like um, go back and fix. Whereas here, which was, just, it was baked into, we were never going to be able to change the world at Talk Talk in terms of our architecture and our data platform architecture. But what we were trying to do was do what we could within the, within the constraints in terms of how services spoke to each other and what we could actually deploy within that. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And, I mean, we're already going off topic, which is what I love to do on here. But Sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's not for me. My question: Why do you think so many data teams or kind of data projects do have that kind of cobbled together nature? Like, is it just because every business is kind of doing stuff slightly differently? There's different areas doing different things, and eventually they come together and try and knit it together. Because I feel like it's probably less common in software engineering, for example. I think it's about like raison d'etre for the business, right? Is that generally like businesses come out with, if, if it's in software engineering, right, you're building a product that's going to be the, the reason for the existence of the business, yeah. right? And data is always for so long seen as the side effect, right? It's the transactional, it's a byproduct of what the business does. And the businesses that we see doing it really well, uh, data is baked in to the reason to extra of the business, i.e. it's a product physically of the business. Yeah. And the businesses that we see things that are a bit more coupled together is because they realize actually this byproduct that we've been generating from the reason that we do business is actually really, really useful for us. And then, but then how do we actually now bake that into our day-to-day -day pipe pipelines? And it's really hard once you've already got a very well-established business to go back and have all of that, the right governance and the right processes in place to make that happen. Yeah, that I makes sense. I that's, think that's my my two cents on it, based on my experience so far. And do you think that's maybe why sometimes, because we talked about this when you were on the show last time, about financial services and credit risk and looking at that, that part of data. And that's just been, that's been around forever, right? So quite often, 
it, certainly from the outside looking in, I can think of a few examples of banks and financial services companies that seem to be getting like the ML engineering, the ML ops, the data engineering, they seem to be getting that quite right. But maybe, like you said, because it has just been baked in in one way or another for a long time. I think as well, like in the financial services, if you get that wrong, you're the compliance and the, the the pitfalls of that are so much more like detrimental to you as a business. You have like big fines associated, yeah, whereas well. for other businesses, you know, it's it's a lot more about the value. You're not a cost service, you're a value creator. And it's how much does the business want to um, invest into that value creation from an ML engineering, ML ops pipeline versus where actually we have to have this because we need all the right monitoring in place. Because if the, you know, if a regulator comes knocking on our door, we can't just be saying, well, we just deployed a new version of a model that we don't know when we deployed it or what it's doing or what decisions it's making. Um, you know, the ICO would would not be very happy. I don't think. Yeah, that would be, yeah, to put, to put it mildly. And I suppose as well, some of the decision-making in financial services affects like real people real money whereas obviously often in a startup it is changing the product or changing if you're in marketing it's changing who's getting a targeted like offer for example like this it's not the end of the world if you get it wrong like it's not great um but it's not the end of the world whereas yeah if you mess somebody's mortgage up then that's quite a big deal anyway so about six months ago according to linkedin maybe a little bit less because i think they're always a month ahead the move to financial times came around as data science director which is pretty exciting First of all, what kind of things do the Financial Times need help with when it comes to data? Like, what are they? What do what do they want to get from data science? Yeah, so uh, it is a really exciting opportunity, and I'm so happy to to be a part of the FT, um, particularly because my background, as we talked about last time on the podcast, was in financial mathematics. So it's a really nice thing to couple together my my passion. Um, and also my actual full-time career these days. In terms of kind of the team that I'm in, so we're much more around how do we develop the the, the product and support the product in terms of our ft.com uh, website and also our applications and how do we use data science to improve that? So things like recommendations, clustering articles together, and also how do we actually improve our subscriptions business? So how do we retain customers? How do we acquire them? And so very much from a kind of much more traditional um, subscription strategy approach. Um, so when we talk about data science at the FT, we're thinking much more along the lines of people like the Netflix or the Spotify model in terms of how do we actually engage, attract and retain customers to the FT and how can we use um, predictive modelling to to make that happen. Is that quite a challenge to attract people to like a newspaper on well, an online news subscription these days? Because you mentioned like Spotify and Netflix and you can see that, so Netflix is an example, an 18-year-old to a 70-year-old is probably, no matter what their kind of customer persona is, is probably interested in Netflix in some way, shape or form. Like it would be quite a wide range. I just imagine the FT is quite a kind of, there must maybe there isn't, but I would have thought there's a fairly solid demographic for like FT subscriptions. 
So one of the big things that the FT is quite focused on right now is we're a very heavily equality, diversity and inclusivity hirer. And as a business, we are very focused on our inclusivity and our diversity. But we also want to make that happen through our product and our access to our product. So where um, on your comment around how does our, you know, the demographic of our business, we're actually looking to make to see opportunities where we can increase the different and the variety of the demographic of our business. So how can we attract a younger audience? How can we attract people and students? How can we attract more women? How can we attract more women that are reaching to kind of board level positions? So there's a lot of that going on at the FT um, outside of, of the data science team. I would say in terms of kind of comparing ourselves to like Netflix and Spotify, you're completely right. We are very much, we we build, the data science team at the FT builds the lifetime value modeling. And um, since I've joined, I've kind of been on a bit of a uh, mission to kind of break down some of the myths around the fact that we're, we're very different about how we're going to apply this because generally what you're trying to do with the lifetime value modeling is differentiate the best like customers that you want to attract to your business the best quality ones in in comparison to your competitors now actually in the global media market right we don't have that many um competitors operating in in the in the news agenda space that we're that the ft is in yeah so you know our closest competitors are people like the wall street journal and so you have a very different type people have a different intent when they come to join the ft so it's much more around once you've got those customers, how do you continue to engage them? That's the type of modeling we're looking to do. And a lot of that is determined by the news agenda. And so you've seen during like the pandemic and particularly FT's uh, been brilliant around a lot of the COVID trackers um, that have been out there. And so we've seen a lot of that increased footfall and increased subscriber activity because of the news agenda, particularly around the Trump era as well. But what we're then wanting to do is ensure that then the right information is surfaced up to that customer to continue to make them an FT customer um, and an FT subscriber. So that's where the power of like data science will come in. It also comes down to things like how do we make the homepage much more attractive to the individual? So how do we use things like personalization to really make sure that that person wants to come back and they're being surfaced with the right content? We have a huge B2B part of our business. So how do we kind of think about how is the B2C lens different to that B2B lens? So when you're landing, what do you want to do in terms of um, sharing information around your organization rather than just being an individual customer? So there's a lot of kind of um, nuance and niche, definitely, that makes us very different to a traditional subscriptions business. But there's also a lot of stuff that are very similar in the sense of just trying to keep people using more personalization to keep people engaged like Spotify and Netflix do. Yeah, and... Is the FC almost, it'll be similar to Spotify and Netflix in a way that there will be a percentage or a, a kind of selection of customers that will just stay with you. Like that, that is just part of their monthly expenditure. They subscribe to the FT and actually part of your job and the rest of the data science team is to, I suppose, make sure they stay, but there's, there will be a stable of people that were happy to stay anyway. But it is, yeah, attracting those new people, using personalization to, to differentiate like that's it's quite interesting challenges from a data point of view 
Yeah, completely. Because as well, it's about I, I'm really intrigued by the content that we have and the way that we can use things like content and metadata to surface up like how people read. So we've got some really interesting modeling, um, something we've called the breadth of reading article recommendations, which was built before I, was, I, I joined the FT, but we're kind of expanding its capability, which is all around what do you read and how is the what the articles that you currently read where are they kind of centered around and so we use clustering to do some of that but then how do we actually attract you to read other other types of content that may be very very different so you have a bit of a variety of life and is that more do we want to attract give people variety or do we want to just keep uh, recommending them articles that are of a same caliber or same nature and what what's the what's the difference for different people and so that's like a whole really interesting thing that I think you can really do with that whole news agenda piece because you can really get into the detail of like not only you're just thinking about the the nature of the article but what companies it's talking about which countries it's in and there's very all these different kind of tangents of information that come into like how do we actually think about um what's similar and what's not and it's like so it's kind of like the i think there's a like a meme about it somewhere but like when you buy a pair of white shoes from asos and then you get a recommendation to buy more white shoes and it's just because like they've seen you've bought that so they're like well you maybe you should buy this so it's kind of like with the ft like you read lots of articles about x do we push more articles about x or in order for them to stay interested do you go totally off piste and try and get them to read other things so yeah that yeah i can see why that would be interesting from a kind of data point of view and also quite a challenge to get it right because you don't want to go too far and send people stuff that they just totally aren't keen on or if they load up the homepage and you almost try to be too clever with it and they're like well this isn't what I came to see and then they just close it for example um, which would be the opposite of what you would want I'm sure yeah and at the moment we've like uh, we're experimenting with this in a, a newsletter push notification so it feels like a fairly safe there I think one of the things <laughs> I've been so impressed by with the FT is that we have a very uh, good approach to AB and uh, testing and experimentation and so um, we the whole is kind of embodied in the culture of the FT is this experimentation approach so it's like nothing is uh, done without a thorough experimentation so that feels like I, you have that kind of security to try things and and then figure out what's working what's working best for for the customer it must be nice from a data point of view as well because a lot of data science is research experimentation kind of tweak it try again like that that's kind of the point so yeah if you had a company that was kind of really adverse to that and just wanted to push something or or actually the opposite never wanted to push anything um it would probably be quite frustrating one of the things we spoke about before was the difference of potentially you joining, I think the phrase you used was like a data mature business, um, especially from a data scientist perspective. So quite often a data scientist will join a company that has no data science, that has lots of unstructured, messy data, doesn't really know what they want to do with it yet, haven't really built models. Or you work at a startup like at Hello Soda where you were joined when you were there from the start um so you put a lot of the things in place and then talk talk kind of similarly you were bringing things together but yeah at the ft that they're relatively mature from a data perspective so has that changed has that changed your job like from a joining perspective have you managed to kind of hit the ground running and do more do you think 
massively my I you know my imposter syndrome I think has never been higher because I've got this ridiculously mature competent um, functioning team who's outputting projects delivering models um, and I've joined it and I kind of know my place in the world I'm kind of there to kind of put together sort of the strategic vision and uh, whilst we're deploying models we want to get better at our kind of re real time or streaming um, pipelines and so I've come in to sort of put some of that playbook together but I definitely think it's been a really a huge learning curve and I couldn't like thank my senior data scientists more for being really welcoming of me trying to find my feet and it's been a lot of I mean, anywhere you join, you should always be just listening to figure out how things are done. But it's been a lot of listening in a in a in a in a team. I really feel like I've wanted to start making a lot of like proactive and, and positive change, but needing to be really, really careful with that, because there's so much of what we're, the data science team are doing at the FT is so right already. And it's um, we're, we're we're delivering. Right. So that's been from a kind of a my own kind of career development professional perspective that's been really interesting and I'm still kind of wrestling with what have I actually achieved in the last six months I've been assured that I have been achieving things but it's been a lot more about like listening and slowly kind of tweaking okay I think we've got a gap here and coming in with a lot more about my expertise from my my career today around what I think good would look like for the FT going forward so it's not that things aren't good right now but how do we take it from good or great to the next level of excellence and operational excellence and so it's a lot more strategic -y than I would have thought I've given myself credit for so it's been a lot of like high level thinking and I'm really excited for the new year because it'll be a lot more kind of putting that into some tactics yeah no that's cool though because i suppose it's a bit like and i can't think of any better example just because i like sport but like when a new manager comes into a team that's already doing quite well like there's no point in you ripping up like everything or saying well i'm the new data science director this is how i would do things so everyone shut up and listen to me like the right way to do it is yes yeah, small incremental changes where they're needed but also if they're not needed like that's fine. So it's really cool that you've managed to go into that. Because I imagine quite a lot of the time when there's a really senior hire, it's often to kind of turn around a sinking ship or hire a whole new team or they've never done any data before. So they're like, we better try to get somebody really experienced and see what they would do. It's quite nice to go into, relatively speaking, a kind of steady organization with interesting ideas. Absolutely. And, you know, we're putting so many, I think the great thing about the FT from a data and a specifically a data science perspective is that the foundations are so well architected. So we have, you know, also new hires uh, joined at the same time as me, but a data strategy uh, and a data governance, um, uh, two roles ahead of both of those, and they work cohesively together. And as a data science director, it is so nice to hand off the bits about governance and strategy to somebody else to think about and to coordinate across the business because that is a large part of what you are doing is thinking about okay data science generally more so than insights and analytics and bi you're thinking a lot more about 
what is the strategic direction for our data organization and all of our processes and our data operations going forward. And that's certainly been my last two roles is thinking a lot about, okay, what does all of the ramifications of this strategy and this operational directive that we have around our data, what does that mean from a governance perspective and all of the panic that you have around, oh my gosh, I'm now responsible for kind of anything that we do. And if if the ethics haven't been considered right, or we're not thinking about our downstream and upstream kind of considerations and have we asked our for the right consent around all of this data if we've got a consumer part of our business all of that you're con- like those are the things that kind of keep you up at night because they're not really you've never really had formal training in it but you know that that's a large part of your role yeah and it's really nice to have um the, the, those people that i work with that i kind of can work in collaboration with because you know we're seeing now, you know, we've been talking about a long time, like data platforms and having data platform teams and data engineers. And so in that conversation, I think data science leads are quite comfortable saying, okay, here's the boundaries of what you need to work on in terms of building my data warehouse or my lake house to be able to build my, you know, my applications on top of where the new advent we are on is is talking about the, what's the strategy behind our data what's the governance behind it but how does that come from a data a data science lens not from a more a uh, legal or compliance lens and it's really refreshing to have that at the FT which is that we've got really data literate people in those roles who've been data folks in the past and really understand what the analytics function as a whole built on top of that data platform are trying to achieve and actually helping to, to drive that forward rather than asking you to do all of it in your role. So I think yeah, that's I think, that's a really nice part. I think it's a good point though, because it's a bit like when you hire one data scientist to do data engineering, ML ops, data science, R&D, like stakeholder management strategy, like board meetings and talk about what data is doing. Like there's too much for one person. So a head of data science, a data science manager, a data science director, whatever you want to, whatever title they may have, data governance is a huge part and probably a separate job. In most cases, again, data strategy, very similar. And even looking at other parts of analytics, like it can, you can end up being responsible for a lot very quickly and it getting quite difficult to manage. Um, so it sounds like the team structure is quite good. I mean, how is how is data science set up at the FT? Is it is it one centralized team or is there offshoots of different parts? So currently we're a centralized team. Where we're going towards is that we want, so we have a part of our business called Core, which is where our engineering um, part of our teams were uh, are, and that's where our data platform team are. And so we're wanting to increase that collaboration. So we're currently um, hiring for a senior machine learning operations based. Um, that part of our business is based in Sofia in, in Bulgaria. Oh, and cool. um, so that's something that we're trying to establish that that real collaboration. So we're going to see, I think, offshoots in terms of the operational and engineering support to make to bring us to that next class of data science, let's say, at the FT. Yeah. We also, um, so in analytics, in the insights, part of our analytics team so that's a so that's another part of uh, so where I sit is underneath the chief analytics officer and um, we have data science insights bi 
and a team called Analytics Business Impact, which is all to do with what's the value or that all these teams are generating for the business, which was really cool to have that too. Um, In the insights team, we have a hybrid model where we have some insight analysts embedded into different parts of the business and a centralized team. My hope and my aspiration is that we will go towards that model in data science because we're already starting to see the need that certain areas of the business are hiring their own data scientists. So we'd love to be in a position where they have a dotted line into this centralized data science team so that we have the best practice, best processes and practice, but they're still embedded to get all the kind of work on the domain specific problems they have that are very different to the problems that the centralized team work on. And still nice to talk to other data scientists because that's quite often I'm working with someone just now that I've known for a few years and they are missing the collaboration with other data scientists, whether that's day to day, whether it's month to month, whether it is a dotted line to someone like you, like they're, they're kind of on their own a little bit, but there is other data people in the business. There's just no connection, which can be difficult because you don't want to be the only person in your company doing what you do. Correct. And because, well, A, it gets lonely. B, like, how do you advance? Like, you're going to have to recreate all of the stuff that this centralized team, if there is one, have already just gone through the pains of doing. So over the last three or four years, the FT data science team have come up with, you know, all of the process and people architecture and all of the, like, the HR stuff that is like, some people find it exciting but I, I it's not the, the pleasure that I get from my role which is like all of that you know how do we how do we function as a team how do we interact like what's our operating model all of that you've got to go through that for your own part of the business rather than just maybe looking to another side of the business and saying well they've got this this thing going I can kind of have a leaky line into it and kind of just share on that and grow out maybe a organic part that's that's this embedded model with a with a dotted line to that central team to to use like if we're coming up with a centralized process for how we do streaming deployment then why not just lean into that and use that and similarly if we're going to go out and have you know a few beers and or if, if people drink that is or or just get together and have a nice social why not come along and chat to us about what we're up to that's just nice to have that that sharing about what's going on in different parts of the the ft and i think that's been a huge learning for me from talk talk and here is what a difference being at a larger business whilst the ft isn't a huge business being at a bigger business there's so many moving parts all the time and trying to stay on top of everything is really difficult yeah but i always remember there was a man came where i introduced two people that worked at the same business like one worked on the third floor one worked on the fourth floor one was in software one was in data and we got chatting and it turned out they worked at the same company and it's just like it was just wild that they didn't know that um, I appreciate there is a difference when you get to a huge organization, but they were both working on data problems from a slightly different angle, but there was no dotted line to them or there was no socials or there was no Slack. So they just didn't know, which seems a bit wild. But yeah, I mean, I'm sure that's changed now. And what about hiring then? So I don't know if you've done any hiring since you've been at the FT. Can you see differences from a startup where like before you'd been there from the very beginning so you knew the company inside and out where they were going what the product was what the what the data challenges were and now you work for a company where although you said they're not massive pretty much everyone's heard of the financial times either in passing or seen the physical paper or seen articles um so is there differences there do you think in terms of attraction 
yeah I'd say I'm in a very privileged position now um really lucky in terms of that you know we've recently uh hired and, and filled a, a data science role and had some fantastic talent coming through that um it's been a completely different experience for me because actually it was one of my seniors was hiring for a gap in her team and uh she put together the the uh, like a, so we've been working we've had processes around our hiring and data science it seems for a while this was a kind of a you know as you do kind of a refinement of of the process and so it was a very collaborative um opportunity everybody in the data science team there's 11 of us so people got an opportunity to kind of interview and we were trying to make sure that we had a good level of kind of diversity on our interview panels so it was a very different experience for me because being privileged in that larger team we could have the opportunity to have a gender balanced panel for every applicant that was coming in we also obviously uh thought much more around how we assess for the competencies and it was really like nice to get feedback from my seniors about what they felt like would work in terms of that technical expertise because you know I've changed my hiring from when I was at a startup to to these days thinking about what is it that we want to ask people and I definitely don't want to give people take home technical uh, questions I think a few years ago that was very much a popular uh, approach and I'm not going to lie that's something that I was doing um, when working at Hello Soda but I think uh, you know it can be sometimes unfair on certain people's situations to give them those take home so how do you actually ask those types of technical questions in that in that interview setting and it was really refreshing being able to get uh, like other people suggest ideas and approaches to make that happen and bounce off of bounce off rather than just having to come up with it in, in my own silo box so that's yeah, been really nice yeah so it's been a it was a really refreshing the the thing about uh working for probably a brand that people know i was just uh, shocked by how many applicants we had within day one i think we had 126 applicants within a one day of it going live on on linkedin so you know everyone I wouldn't listens even, to I would... hd right now they're just like <laughs> we can't get anyone to apply and it's just like yeah well we're actually okay for that um, no but you're right though because <laughs> there's most about that no but there's certain companies and there's certain brands that when they're looking for people, it's it is easier because they've built that kind of credibility up. They've built there's a level of intrigue where there's people that think, do you know what I really want to work for X, whether that's Financial Times, whether that's Facebook or whatever, I don't know. But that's a really bad example. No one should work for Facebook. Um, but yeah, I mean, whoever it is, then you're lucky that you've got that. But also, I suppose. It has to stand up when they come to interview. Like you don't want to be that company where they think I've always wanted to work for the Financial Times, and then they interview and they're like, "Well, that sounds terrible." So you, you, there's two sides to that. There's expectation as well. A hundred percent, and I think that's what I mean. I've been absolutely like delighted, but my biggest surprise of joining the FT is that everything what you think it's going to look like on the inside is exactly actually how it looks like. It's been the most collaborative, supportive, wonderful, inclusive place I've, I've ever had the pleasure of working at. And I've worked at some some, some brilliant places and, and their, their commitment to their people is like second to none. Like paper welfare is at the very, very heart of the business. And I think that's what makes 
the like the content and the paper and the the whole put together of the product so fantastic because people are like genuinely joyous to work there and it's a very supportive environment you know if you you're not happy then we're, we're going to figure out ways to, to make you happy or you know and and very promoting of people in their careers and their and their life you know it's not just about work but it's actually about you know what's going to make you content in your life like during the pandemic they introduced things like welfare days so that people had could just take some time off to like have self-care days the ft has always had like a lot of flexibility so i think when when people do go through that interview process they do they do see that resonate from the people is that people are very like happy and passionate to work at the ft and yeah. i think it was really nice as well going through that interview uh process and hearing from whilst i wasn't the hiring manager but hearing from the recruiter that when they look at the funnel what they're trying to do is make sure that our applicant funnel is very diverse and so we're actually uh, assessed on how diverse our applicant pool is before we even get to interview process and it's a really different way of like thinking and looking at it is that you're not trying to then go look at your how diverse are you once you've got your final shortlist but actually you're trying to address that right up at the front of the front of the pipeline which seems completely sensical when you think about it but i think that must be quite hard for our recruitment and talent team to actually get right yeah. and so things like that make it really like nice as a as a hiring manager to to know that you can kind of rely on that talent acquisition team to kind of give you those that more diverse pool uh, pool of candidates and then that's where as well it pays back dividends at the ft because you get a, a different view from somebody who you actually then hire and then they challenge you and it kind of is self-fulfilling in the sense that we're always being challenged by our people approach and people therefore quite find it very like joyous to work there I think we're the first news organization I read the other day to come with a, a transgender policy in terms of our employment so we have a transgender uh, policy now um, from a HR perspective I think we're one of the first news uh, media organisations to do that. It's really cool to hear as well, because you definitely, or maybe I'm wrong, but I would have thought from the outside looking in, you might not think of the FT as a super forward-thinking company because they've been around for so long. So is it entrenched in, like, we are a news company, we do this, like, we don't change much? And then also from a data point of view, do we have interesting problems to solve? And, like, obviously the answer is yes to both. And having that funnel up front makes sense, because everyone always says... Oh, we don't have enough. We don't have enough female data scientists, and then all they look at is the last three people they interviewed. Is so, well, but yeah, you need to attract them at the to start of it. Otherwise, there's, there's no point. Like, there's no point in looking at your final shortlist. Like you said, it doesn't tell you that much. From a personal point of view, you are also back on the speaking circuit. I am. I really enjoyed Altitude X back on the 4th of November. It was great to see you as well there. So it was great to, it felt like everyone from Manchester showed up at this conference. It was so wonderful just to, I think, but I did kind of have to have a complete like black zone, like not, like, just not speak to anybody, put myself in a dark room for the next two days after it. Cause I think being around 500 people for the first time. <laughs> I was genuinely in... floored when you, I saw your tweets in like you were just like knackered and I, I, I obviously I went to the, I went to a stag to the next day and the whole train over to Liverpool, I was just like, oh, I could do with a break. Um, and it was purely because you were standing in a circle of people that you knew catching up after 18 months and in your case longer because you were obviously in the states so like it was just it was really nice 
but also yeah it was it was hard going but no have you have you loved kind of being back talking at events obviously the networking part is really important but has it been really cool to to kind of for you to be back in the uk and and speaking because you've always made a point of that like it's always been something you've been really really good at in terms of giving back your time and and talking at different groups yeah i for me it's a very fulfilling part of my like my extracurricular let's say so the thing that i enjoy doing outside of work is is talking about data science and talking about what what I think makes it click um, and, and helping more people to, to be passionate about it. I've always struggled to write. So people always used to say, oh, write a blog post, write this. And I just, I can't think of anything more miserable than getting at the end of the day and having to sit down and write, you know, 2000 words about a blog. Uh, I'd much rather just stand up and have a bit of a chat or do a podcast or put a few slides together and have a bit of a laugh and a joke with people. It's much more interactive, really isn't it? Like blog posts are like, even if someone likes it, the best you're ever going to get is like they'll hit like on Medium. Like you don't get any back and forth. You don't, you're not challenged because sometimes when you speak at events, people will ask you, I mean, sometimes outlandish questions, but in general, people might want to know more detail. They'll grab you after the event. They'll ping you on LinkedIn after and say, I saw you speaking at that. Like when you do a blog post, it's kind of like if you get one comment or something, you're like, oh, that's cool. Like it's it's not the same. You don't get this. You don't get the same thing back from it, I don't think. Yeah. And I really would struggle as well. Like I feel the way I present myself is such a part of my personality. And I don't know how I do that when I, I some people are super talented. They're putting their personality across when they write. I've, I've given it a good go when I kind of talk and I feel like I do. I, I come across in certain ways. I'm, I'm clearly enough to be uh, invited back to speak every so often. So that's that's always good. Certainly in the case of Man Kamel anyway. Um, so uh, yeah, I, that, I really enjoy it. I think I've really struggled post the pandemic is that at the beginning of the pandemic, I was doing a lot of virtual events and really struggled with those initially because it was a completely way of, new way of kind of talking and engaging with people I sort of took a bit of a hiatus from it from anything online but actually I've got more use like accustomed to engaging and putting the personality and the emotions across virtually yeah. so when I did something in real life it was a real <laughs> shock I remember getting before I went up on the stage I had to do a bunch of box breathing for about five minutes be like is this okay I, I I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm talking about. And I was like, this is the first time this has happened to me in quite a few years, like feeling nervous to give a talk. That's funny because so, you were literally sitting next to me at the Altitude X event at the talk before yours. And you were just like, right, I'm, I'm off to speak. Like there was no, it, it, you didn't come across as nervous. It was a good, a few minutes before this, I, they were like, oh, we're going to put you on stage now. I was like, let me just uh, do my counting and, and have a few breaths because otherwise I'm going to speak really fast. So, you know, that, apart from that, apart from just getting back over the, like, the typical fear of like, oh my gosh, I'm talking in front of people again. Sometimes I, you know, it's really weird. I, I get a lot of like anxiety after I've spoken or done like a networking event. And I like keeps me up at night thinking, why did I say that silly thing? I think a lot of people oh, that they happens. get something similar. And like, yeah, that happens to that, me constantly. 
that's been really bad since we've gone back to in real life events. I'm like, I really, really rather keep virtually because at least I'm virtual. I can, if I'm going to say something I know I might regret late, like not bad thing, but just like, why did I say that silly thing? I can put myself on mute. Like I was at a gig last week on Thursday in London and the, uh, the artist was back like in the like little area you could buy like a CD. And I, I said something really stupid about analog music and all night during the whole gig all I could think about was why did I say that comment to that person (laughs) I just need to like have the mute filter in real life that's what I feel like it's proper overthinking it um (laughs) no it's good to see things back and we have disgusting a man Kamel in the new year but we we will see last fingers crossed for it I would love that I know I'm actually it actually ties in really nicely to my last topic so um I was speaking to someone the other day and said that we might do a kind of themed man ML around ML ops because it's obviously been so I hate saying things like it's been a hot topic like you sound like such an idiot but everyone's talking about ML ops we spoke briefly at Altitude X about that we also had a laugh about the fact that at one of the first man emails, you talked about full stack data science, which part of that <laughs> is getting models into production, using things like Docker, like acting more like a DevOps team in a way, which obviously is what we're, what MLOps is moving towards. Interestingly, I would argue I probably prefer the term data ops because uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if MLOps is my favorite thing to say, but where do you stand on it being important versus potentially a bit of hype versus who should actually do it like should it be an mlops team at the ft for example should it be an outsourced partner could it be a bit of both could it be a product that you just buy like what what do you think where do you think it's going so it's definitely not just i just recently gave a talk at our ft uh uh, engineering conference engine room called uh what the heck is mlops and is it just a fad and my point was it's a principle right that when you deploy something you've got to be considerate of how that thing's going to be used and that's my big statement that I want to say is that it's not about the architecture it's not about like yes all the testing and CI and CD and putting things into deployment pipelines all of that engineering and architecture has to exist but the fundamental thing that you're doing is you're making something a predictive model or a service or a something that is actually probabilistic, accessible into the hands of your organization or some other decision maker who may not actually understand what that thing does. And it's like big responsibility with that, right? So you, whilst you think of MLOps all as the infrastructure to make deployment of machine learning happen, let's say, what I really want people to focus on is like what happens after that like what's the principle that you're going to hold yourself to in terms of how you consume these things and like you know the with great great responsibility with great power comes great responsibility quote that I used to always say at different meetups and I think it's that that once you've deployed something into your ecosystem who's consuming that and what decisions are they going to make off the back of that and have you it goes back to that data ops approach which is have you got all the ethics and the governance and the compliance right and the approach right and how are you deriving that value in the business my 
thing about machine learning ops is this has been happening for ages. My first AmmankML, I talked about Docker before the first version of Docker was released. And people were like, we were not even using logistic regression. What she was waffling on about. Um, and that was back in 2015 when no one was really even deployed. Like no one was putting data science into production. And I think people thought I was a little bit crazy. So this stuff has been you know, happening for a long time. I think it's just that now we're at the advent of the vendors and the technology is caught up in terms of the need that data scientists, data scientists have had over the last 10 years. And I think that's why there's so much hot topic about it because people kind of gone through that, oh, we provide a platform that you can build data science algorithms on. And then people go, okay, that's good, but how do we actually derive value from that? And it's like, oh, well, we need to actually put it into production, but there's all these aspects of production that people need to think about when it comes to data science it's different to engineering like how do we scale this thing how do we version control a model how do we version control our data how do we actually like do all of our continuous integration if there's a, a model artifact and data and code associated with this these aren't easy things to solve so it's been a long time coming i think at the ft my key, what i'm really keen to do is that we have a great architecture a lot of it's open source and we we want to find something that's going to embellish and enhance what we already do rather than bringing in a third party vendor. I think my advice to everybody is you need to look at what what architecture you already have. If, if I was starting out a brand new data science team, I would buy in from a third party vendor because the capabilities out there and I'm not going to name any names because I don't want to um, endorse anybody. <laughs> but you can uh, definitely Google and uh, find some. But yeah, there's some great capabilities now on the market that have really matured out. And um, I've worked with a, a couple of those vendors when I was at Talk Talk, and it made complete sense for us because we'd already were integrating there. Uh, we were already using proprietary technology and bought into that vendor. So it made yeah. sense to scale with them. When we when, when if you're already in somewhere where you're just trying to enhance your architecture then you're going to probably look to see well what are the solutions we need to do to scale or optimize to the next level so it, based on business i'm sorry that's a really non-answer but it's really based on your your situation and what no that makes achieve. it makes sense and uh, uh, that talk you just did at the ft we could definitely do um at the next man as well thank you so much for coming back on thanks so much